Let's pray as we come to his word. Father God, pray that you'd speak to us this morning as we've just been singing. Uh, Father, pray that you would change our thoughts and our attitudes. Father, give us soft hearts and open ears, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have you ever looked at other people and thought, I will never be holy like they are? Do you know what I mean? People who just seem so sorted, so sort of otherworldly. In Jesus' day, those people were the Pharisees. They were the law keepers par excellence. They were the people that people looked at and said, they are so holy. They didn't just fast once a year, as the law demanded. They fasted sometimes more than once a week. They didn't just give a tenth of their money to the temple. They gave a tenth of their spice jars. They gave a tenth of their fruit bowls to the temple. They had laws about keeping laws. They had schools that debated laws and helped the people understand them. They were generally loved and respected by the people for their law keeping. If you wanted to know about the law, you spoke to the Pharisees. That's what those guys were all about. And then we see this big bombshell that Jesus drops in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5 verse 20. He says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And if you were hearing this for the first time, you must be thinking, how on earth can we be more righteous than the Pharisees? How can we be more holy than them? Well, one answer, of course, is that if we're Christians here this morning, we have the righteousness of Christ. There's a great swap that has taken place on the cross that we were speaking about earlier. Jesus was counted as sin, and we are counted as righteous because of our faith, which unites us to Jesus. Now, this is, of course, true, and this is the only way to get to heaven. But as we've seen in this series, when Matthew talks about righteousness, he generally means righteousness in terms of our actions, righteous things that we do. Our actions are to reflect our new righteous status in Christ. We're to be who Christ has made us, so to speak. But that leaves us with the same question. How? How can we do that? Well, the righteousness of the Pharisees consisted of three things. Tick boxes, lines, and keep out signs. Tick boxes, lines, and keep out signs. They treated the law of God like a tick box exercise. Do you imagine their mentality? Have I managed not to murder anyone today? Ah, yes, tick. Have I kept the Sabbath this week? Ah, tick. But in order to be able to do tick boxes, they had to have lines. What were the lines that you could and couldn't cross? What did it mean to break a law? And generally what happened with the Pharisees is they thought, well, you can get as close to the line as you like, as long as you don't cross the line. You can go right the way up. And they decided exactly what crossing the line meant. So they might be thinking, hmm, well, I've only beaten someone today. I haven't technically killed them, so I haven't crossed that line. That's okay. In fact, probably that word technically was the Pharisees' favourite word. I haven't technically done anything wrong. They really like that word. The last thing that righteousness was about for the Pharisees was keep out signs. Don't meet our standards, don't bother talking to us. They made themselves seem righteous by making out everybody else was far worse than them. And they stayed away from them. 
especially those people. You know, you read about it, don't you, in the Gospels as they stay away from the tax collectors and sinners. They separated themselves and, and looked down on them to make themselves seem holier. But Jesus is having none of this. He's going to show his disciples what real righteousness looks like. Last week he showed us a kingdom characterised by gentleness and purity. This week he's going to show us a kingdom characterised by radical faithfulness and truth. So first of all, radical faithfulness. Let me read to you again verses 31 and 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced man commits, sorry, a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus here addresses the subject of marriage and divorce. Really it's a continuation of what he said about marriage in verses 27 to 30. That's why it doesn't have the, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you. It doesn't have that full formula. It just says, it was also said, sort of following on. It's going to form a bridge, really, between these two sections. Now, as we come to this subject, I'm aware it's tricky for a number of reasons. Some of us here will have gone through a divorce. I'm aware of that as I'm preaching. I'm also aware that there are different and difficult circumstances that surround divorce. And this is not all that the Bible has to say on the subject. But it does still have something to teach us. The other reason it's tricky is that some of us aren't even married. And uh, this can seem fairly irrelevant. But as we'll see, the teaching is much broader than we might first expect. The other reason that it might be tricky is that some of us are married and think that divorce is not on the cards. We think we're a million miles away from divorce. We might be thinking, well, I'll switch off for this bit. And, uh, you know, the, the other half might be fine, but this bit I'll sort of switch off. But as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he falls. We've got to be careful, haven't we, that we don't fall into the traps that Jesus is warning us. So keep your ears open. There are actually things for us to learn here too. So what does Jesus actually say? Well, here he paraphrases Deuteronomy 24, 1-4. You'll see it on the back of your notice sheets there. If you look at that commandment there... The commandment is actually to do with not divorcing, is not to do with not divorcing and remarrying uh, anybody, but divorcing and remarrying the same woman. But included in that command is the certificate of divorce. This is the time the Bible mentions it. A husband was required to give a certificate of divorce to his wife. A certificate of divorce was legal proof that the woman was divorced and therefore able to remarry. That was normally written into the divorce certificate that the husband would give to her. Now remember, this was a time when remarriage would have almost certainly been a necessity. There was no welfare state to care for women who had been divorced. A woman could be left destitute without a husband or children. That's why in the Bible, widows were to be cared for and orphans and people who didn't have that support network, both in the Old and New Testament. So a certificate of divorce then was supposed to be a protection for women. But the scribes and the Pharisees had turned this into a tick box exercise. If you want to divorce your wife, that's fine. 
you can do so as long as you fill in the right form. You know, get all the technicalities right. As long as you can tick the right boxes, then it's fine. Now, what those boxes were differed in Jesus' day. People had different opinions. In Deuteronomy, it talked about finding some sort of indecency in your wife. Now, for some teachers in Jesus' day, that simply meant adultery. So if a a wife had committed adultery, that was the indecency and divorce was permitted. For some teachers, though, it meant virtually anything. There's actually a case of a man divorcing his wife in Jesus' day because she burnt his dinner. And he counted that as grounds for divorce, as the indecency that he'd found in his wife. And funnily enough, it was actually this idea that it could be basically anything that was more popular in Jesus' day. That was the one that was going around. Even the Pharisees signed up to this idea um, that it was anything. And this led to a place where women were no longer safe. You see, God designed marriage as a, a haven of security. Promises have been made to stay together. Whatever, in sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer. The odd burnt turkey should not be, leave us, uh, a wife quaking in her boots that her husband is going to leave her. That was the whole point of marriage, wasn't it? That you've got that security there, that those little things won't matter. It was supposed to provide security where mistakes could be made and be forgiven. Where problems could be worked out together. But in this scenario, marriage becomes a sort of constant master chef slash beauty pageant slash episode of The Apprentice. Where you know one mistake and you could be out on the street. Now that's almost the situation we're approaching now in the UK. But despite what you might think, it's still not possible to, to be divorced against your will uh, if there's no uh, fault. The Supreme Court upheld that in 2018 in the case of a, a 78-year-old man who did not want to be divorced by his wife and they couldn't make him be divorced. But that case has led to a campaign for uh, the law to be changed that will likely go ahead that means that for any reason you can get divorced even if you don't want to. No fault uh, divorce does now exist if both parties want it. And in the vast majority of cases, it's uncontested. So it just goes through. It's a sad, sad situation. 42% of marriages in the UK will eventually end in divorce. That adds up to 100,000 divorces every year. And it robs men and women from the security that marriage should offer. I should say, it's not all doom and gloom. The number of divorces is falling each year, but mainly because fewer people are getting married each year. But the situation that Jesus is speaking to is actually now quite similar to the situation that we are in. They're not all that different. So what does Jesus say to the situation? Have a look at verse 32. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. When Jesus said this, this was very countercultural. This was against what people actually thought in the day. I should say here that Jesus is not saying that all divorce is sinful. Paul gives specific circumstances when divorce is allowed. So 1 Corinthians 7, again you'll find it on the back of your notice sheet, 1 Corinthians 7, 10 to 15. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, 
But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, he should not divorce, she should not divorce him. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So here we see that there are specific circumstances. If an unbelieving partner wants a divorce, then it's permitted. It's not commanded, but it's permitted in those particular circumstances. Jesus here gives other circumstances where divorce is allowed, but we'll come to that in a minute. But it means that divorce is not always sinful. But it is always sad. It's always a tragedy in some sense, as the two that God has put together are torn apart again. It's always going to be painful. It's always going to hurt. And God wants us to spare us that pain. God wants us to stay together in marriage. Now that is not the tricky bit, really. The tricky bit is remarriage after divorce. That's what Jesus is talking about here. If you read it carefully, it's assumed that the former wife will have to remarry. We mentioned that earlier. And in doing so, she will commit adultery in some way. But interestingly here, the fault lies at the husband, the original husband, for divorcing her. What's the application for the hearers? It's quite simple. Don't divorce your wife. That's what he's saying. If you divorce her, you will expose her to adultery. That's another way to translate that verse. It's as though you're putting her in harm's way. If you care for her, don't do it. If you care for your own godliness, don't do it, because the adultery will be your fault. Now, there is teaching about remarriage after divorce in the Bible, and this is one of those passages. But the driving force here, the application for us, really is to be faithful to the woman or the man that you are married to. Be faithful to the person that you're with. Don't wrong them by making them into an adulterer. Now, I've struggled with these words this week. They've been controversial down through the ages. What exactly does it mean that the wife will commit adultery? After all, the marriage is dissolved by divorce. That's why it's so sad, isn't it? That it really does break up the marriage. Divorce does exist, if you like. It's not saying that you're constantly married forever uh, once you're married. There is such a thing as divorce. Well, perhaps, I offer this tentatively, it has to do with the verses before. So if you look up at Matthew uh, chapter 5, 27 and 28, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. There is such a thing as adultery of the heart. If a man or a woman has been divorced against their will, which seems to be the situation here, and still harbours feelings for their former spouse, and then is made by necessity to marry again, they're with a new partner in law, but they're with their old partner in heart. The bond of heart that was there remains on one side, even if it's been broken legally on the other. I say this tentatively because it's not the majority position, but then actually there isn't really a majority position because there are so many different positions on exactly what this verse means. 
But I would say to me that it seems to make more sense than saying that in some way the partner is still married in God's eyes to their previous partner. If that were true, then their new marriage is a sham and actually should be dissolved. As one commentator puts it, we'd be forced into the bizarre situation that we should be counselling that the previous norms of their relationship with their former partner should be resumed. So in other words, if they're still married to them, we should be counselling them to be with them. If divorce is not real, then actually the Bible says that married couples should be sleeping together regularly, living together. Are we really saying that's what we mean if they're still married to that other person? The thrust of this though, the application of this as I keep saying, is don't put your partner in this situation, whatever it means. Whatever it means, it is a bad situation to be in. So be faithful to your partner. Stay with them if at all possible. Work at a marriage. Don't make divorce your first port of call if troubles arise. Seek help. But what about the exception clause here Jesus gives? He says, except on the grounds of sexual immorality. Well, there's a multitude of opinions on this as well. Is it referring back to the indecency in Deuteronomy 24? The wife here being guilty of adultery that somehow breaks up the marriage. That's the most common position. John Piper points out that the word adultery isn't used, but the word sexual immorality. He thinks, actually, he takes a very hardline position that this actually refers to the breaking off of an engagement, of a betrothal. As evidence, he points out that Joseph was going to divorce Mary. But they weren't actually married, they were just engaged, weren't they, at the time? So divorce was the word being used for breaking off an engagement as well for, as for a marriage. Adultery would then not be the right word because she wasn't married. I think though, even though Piper's view is interesting and has some merit, the most common position is probably the most likely explanation. If she has broken the marriage bond by committing adultery, then he is within his rights to formalise that breakup by divorcing her. But what we mustn't do here is turn this into another tick box exercise. Just think for a second, how would a Pharisee approach this passage that we've just looked at? How would he approach the exemption to this rule? Well, he'd say, well, as long as there's been adultery, that's okay, tick. Well, what constitutes adultery? What about an affair of the heart? What if actual sex hasn't taken place? The danger is that we start treating this as yet another tick box or line. But the fact is that we should go as far away from this line as possible. To paraphrase Joey from Friends, the line should be a dot to us, but from the other side, from the good side. We want to be as far away from divorcing our partner or committing adultery as we possibly can. I remember when I was younger um, hearing a story, uh, sort of one day parable about a, a driver who was looking for a job. There was a lady who lived at the top of a mountain and uh, she interviewed three drivers uh, who could take her down this mountain. She was a bit worried about sort of going down. The road was very windy. There was no fence at the side of the road. And to each driver she sort of said, how, how far, how close to the edge can you take me and I'll still be safe? How close to the, the edge of the mountain? And the first driver said, I can take you within two metres of the edge of the mountain and you'll be absolutely safe. She said, great, okay, wonderful. Next driver says, I can take you about one metre from the edge of the mountain and you'll still be safe. And the third driver says, 
I won't be going anywhere near the edge of the mountain. I'll be clinging to the middle of that mountain as much as I possibly can, trying to get you as far away from the edge as possible. Who do you think she hired? It's the one who keeps her safe, isn't it? Who keeps her far away from the line as possible. If we're married here this morning, how can we be as far away from this line as possible? How can we be actively filling our lives with love for our spouse rather than fault-finding and nitpicking? How can we be keeping that spark of love and romance alive in our marriages? Husbands, when was the last time you bought your wife flowers? Wives, when was the last time you gave your husbands a back rub? If he likes that sort of thing. Both of you, when was the last time you gave your partner mind-blowing sex? That's part of keeping away from adultery, isn't it? That's part of keeping away from divorce. If we're caring for one another. The Bible paints the picture of sex as something that glues two people together. Are you keeping that bond strong? How do you react in a loving way when your partner burns that turkey? Do you scream and shout, lay blame, accuse? Or do you take them in your arms, tell them that you don't love them for what you cook, what they cook for you? And then order take out for the two of you. If we thought more about these questions, then perhaps we wouldn't have to nitpick over the specifics of divorce. If we're unmarried here this morning, how can we stay as far away from this line as possible? Are we being faithful to other people in our lives? Our friends, our family, our brothers and sisters in Christ? Are we guarding our thoughts, our eyes, our bedtime reading, our internet connections? Are we living sexually pure lives far away from that line of adultery? It's all on the same continuum really, isn't it? The goal is faithfulness. Faithfulness to God. Faithfulness to our partner. Faithfulness to all. That is what God wants from us. Radical faithfulness. Divorce is permitted in the Bible. But our aim in Christ's kingdom is to be a million miles away from divorce. Not seeing how close to the line we can make it with our partner before we make them, or they make us divorce them. Or how close to the line of sin we can make it with sexual purity. We have to be faithful to all. But despite what you might think, the Bible is not obsessed with sex, nor uh, nor is the teaching of Jesus. They permeate the whole of our lives as we see next. Our next point is radical integrity. Radical integrity. Have a look at verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Here we see another inference from the Old Testament. Not a direct quote, but an allusion to what the Old Testament taught about oaths. It's really an extension of the ninth commandment, where we're told not to bear false witness, just as the previous two have been about the sixth and seventh commandments. Should we keep our oaths? What does Jesus say? Have a look at the next part, 34 to 37. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you, what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Jesus says, don't swear oaths. Be a million miles away from oaths. Oaths are there to ensure that the truth is told. 
Don't be one of those people who needs to take an oath. I remember uh, at school, if you're sort of getting in trouble with other people in the playground, they, they'd make you swear an oath that you hadn't done something or that you would do something. And uh, I remember at school, the sort of one that seemed to end all arguments was swearing on your mother's life. Calling on some power to, to take your mother's life if you're lying, I suppose, was really the, the idea. And intriguingly, it worked. Normally people would accept that as being something true. We get more subtle when we're older, don't we? So uh, you might have seen Parliament recently, we swear on the Bible. Um, you notice that some MPs, if you watch that video, cross their fingers behind their back uh, as they said it. We have ways of getting round oaths, don't we? But we still are involved with them. In Jesus' day, oaths were heavily regulated. If you swore by certain things, it had to be true. Uh, it had to be kept, otherwise you'd be found guilty. You could actually get in trouble with the law. If you swore by other, other things, it didn't. Jesus mocks this later on in Matthew, in Matthew 23, verses 16 to 18. Woe to you, blind guides, who say if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if he swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. And you say if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if he swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You see the ridiculous way they do it? So these certain things, that means you have to keep it. These ones, no, you can lie, that's fine. Jesus rebukes them here. Don't swear by anything on earth. Because the earth belongs to God. Really, it's referencing back to him. Don't swear by anything in heaven, because that belongs to God as well. Even your own body is not under your control. You can't change the colour of your hair. Mine seems to go white naturally, it would seem, uh, gradually over time. But you can't make it do that. If you swear an oath, it is binding by whatever or whoever you choose to swear it by. Because in the end, it always goes back to God. But Jesus' point here is don't be someone who needs to swear oaths. Don't be someone who has to appeal to some other authority to prove that he's telling the truth. Be a people characterised by truthfulness. When you say yes, let it really mean yes. When you say no, let it really mean no. You'll all know people, won't you, who when they say yes, you know that actually when it comes round to it, they really mean no. You all know people like that, don't you? You all know people who said that they're going to do something... And really, you know when they say it, they're not really going to get round to doing it. Friends, it's better to say no in the first place. If you're not going to do something, or you can't do something, just say no. Don't be that person for whom yes means nothing. If you find yourself having to make oaths, or making promises all the time, it probably means that you're down that path. We need to take this incredibly seriously. Does your yes mean yes? And your no mean no? Does your yes and no mean something when you say it? Now we might be tempted to think, well, this isn't lying, technically. But isn't that what the Pharisees thought? Wasn't that their favourite word? Well, technically I was thinking that I would when I said it. Well, technically I didn't say that I would definitely do it. All those ducking and diving around the truth are acting like Pharisees. We do it all the time, don't we? Holding things back. Not giving the whole truth. Not actually answering the question, but sort of dodging it. Exaggerating when we say things. Quoting things out of context. 
only talking about the truth that back up our point of view. Isn't that what we hate in other people when they do that? When people act like slimy politicians doing violence to the truth, making promises that they never intend to keep. We're to be saints, aren't we? Not slippery, slimy, smarmy soundbite makers. We might be tempted to think this is insignificant. That actually, well, the divorce thing, that's a big thing. That lying, actually, that's not a big thing. But I can guarantee you, if this, you put this into practice, this will make a, a more of a difference to your life, I think, in day to day. It will give you something for which we all crave. Integrity. If our yes means yes and our no means no, we have integrity. Integrity is when our lives match our speech. When our words match our actions. We have nothing to fear from being truthful. Ever. It's the devil who's the father of lies. He loves untruths and secrecy and hiddenness. He loves the spirit of the Pharisees that says, I haven't lied technically. And I think this issue of truthfulness will come up far more often than the issue of divorce. It will come up at work, where there's pressure to lie or bend the truth. Pressure to promise things to our bosses that we can't really deliver. It will come up at home, promising to do things around the home or in the garden that we'll never actually get round to doing. It's about integrity, isn't it, in those situations? At church, pressure to pretend that we're something that we're not, to put on a front. Pressure to promise things like, I'll pray for you, which sounds really pious, but do we actually get round to doing it? Better to be truthful and not to look as super holy than to be untruthful and pretend. It's about integrity, about being able to look at yourself in the mirror in the morning. It's okay not to be perfect. It's not okay to pretend that we're perfect when we're not. So why is this so important? Well, this section of the Sermon on the Mount finishes like this. Matthew 5, 48. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. As we are salt and the light in the world, we're to reflect our Heavenly Father. We're to be like Him. God always keeps His word. God always does what He says. That's why we can believe the Gospel, isn't it? And it's so important that we reflect His character in our speech and in our actions. Or think about what we were talking about before. God is faithful to His bride. He never gives up on His people. Even though his people let him down so often, he remains faithful to them. Do we display that kind of faithfulness to the world, to our partner, to our friends, to our family? Really it goes back to who God is. God is faithful and true. If you want to know what that looks like, look through the Bible's story and see how he treats his people. Look at Jesus' story, how he remains faithful even to death while his disciples desert him. Look at him as he speaks the truth, even as it costs him his life. Brothers and sisters, we should never have reason to look in awe on another human being's holiness. Because actually, all of us fall short. None of us do this as we should. However righteous we might think we are. 
But we can always look to Jesus. Not just for an example, but for strength. Not to knock us down, but to spur us on. Jesus is our food for the fight, the strength for our struggle. We can look at holier-than-thou types and say, do you know, I will never be holy like they are. But one day we'll be holy like Jesus. Real holiness for eternity. True holiness. Let's pray that God will give us the strength to live this out this week. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the Lord Jesus who lived out what it meant to be faithful and what it meant to be true. Father, pray that we would look to him not to despair, Father, but to see in him the strength that we need. To see in him all that we need for life and godliness. Father, pray that you would help us to be those people who are faithful to our partners, but also to our friends and our family and our brothers and sisters in Christ. Help us, Father, to be those who are truthful and are known for our integrity. Father, help us to be brave in that, as we know that so often coming into our light with things can be difficult. But Father, help us, we pray, not for our glory, but for your glory and that your kingdom might be built. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.